<laughs> John, what's wrong? I'm fat. Well, we know this, but why why are you upset about it now? What about because now? Is, I gained different? I gained ten pounds in like six months. <laughs> that's it's awful. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's candy. So much candy. Candy candy's John, good for me. It's now, good John, for my soul. Okay, you've you've identi- you've completed the first step. Identified the problem. Mm-hmm. Now we have to identify the solution. So what what can we do? I mean, there's nothing not that can be done. It's impossible. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I'll say the one thing we're not going to do is get rid of candy. I mean, but, we can't get rid of candy. It's an American no. right. So I got it. If we just close off, where are you buying this candy? If we close off the doors to this candy shop. Oh well, CVS obviously. Yeah. So we'll we'll close off the doors, and then you can't get into the CVS, and then you can't buy the candy. This or better yet, solution. burn the CVS down. I love it. <laughs> great. <laughs> I'll just burn down. All the places I could potentially buy candy. This is great. I mean, yeah, I've I was I've been waiting for a, a, a fire to purge this land. And <laughs> I mean, we're better. And to from the ashes a... will rise will rise a new a revolution. So <laughs> I'm all for this. <laughs> what better place to start a fire than Southern California? We need it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, there's there's the solution right there. I just said it. Purging. There Try it out. <laughs> we'll call it the first purge. Yeah. And everyone remembers their first time. Yeah, yeah. So we all know we all know exercise doesn't work. We all know diet doesn't work. So yes, I I think I'm just going to become bulimic because what other choice do I have? John, I disagree. I've cut out sweets mm-hmm. in the last couple of months, and I I feel like it's done uh, wonders for my my figure. Um, now, granted, I still am a little paunchy, mm-hmm. um, still a little thick uh, with two C's, and <laughs> mm. but I think overall I'm a little, I I. I admire, not admire, but I, I think I'm a little more photogenic. Like I'm, I don't. I, I admire from... myself for the self-control I've demonstrated. Exactly. Yes. Now I, I lie in bed and look at a mirror in myself and <laughs> look myself in the mirror, and that's a I, reference to something we'll get to later. Uh, didn't you also? Um, didn't you also get a personal trainer? Uh, I did briefly. Um, oh, but then okay. it was too expensive. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> See again. Uh, thinness is a bastion for the rich. That's what it is. I I wouldn't go that far. More like self-discipline. I I got my self-discipline out of my cheapness. Um, I'm Ah. a very frugal person, so... Well, if you're so cheap, then you probably should be eating uh, dollar meal McDonald's every day, right? If you're that cheap. No, I found some uh, healthy and frugal alternatives. Okay. For instance, I make a mean (laughs) avocado toast. Step one. Rummage through the garbage. Step two. (laughs) Yes. But actually, I've made a, a frugal meal, a frugal and healthy meal, from one of the least expected places, John. Do you okay. know what it is? Yes. Avocado toast. Oh, great. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <'Cause as> if <laughs> now, you because if you weren't as much of an insufferable L.A. night, then <laughs> yes, yeah. you're eating avocado toast. <laughs> Indeed, I am. And for a very fair price, because I live in California, avocados are only like a dollar each. <laughs> So even if you're only eating half of one or something like that, that's only 50 cents right there. Ugh. Slice of bread, that's also only 50 cents. You can have a delicious piece of avocado. I put a little basil on there. Oh, jeez. Uh, crack, some, crack some pepper and salt over it. Oh, jeez. Mm, and then delicious. he checks his, he checks his daily astrology. It's like, <laughs> where's Taurus? Is Mercury in retrograde this week? Mm-hmm. And then I, yeah, and then I just uh, talk to you exclusively through Instagram. So. <laughs> Greg's an influencer, guys. I don't know if you knew this. <laughs> you probably haven't felt his influence yet, but it's <laughs> probably not yet. <laughs> Me and uh, and Brandon Paul, the other Paul brother, <laughs> we're collaborating on something—a new pop-up store. <laughs> I like he called him Brandon Paul. <laughs> I, I, I couldn't think of a last name. 
The point is, you and I are brilliant improvisers. <laughs> exactly. Look at us. <laughs> Can't mm. you tell? We've been to UCB. Um, <laughs> thank you for your support, Greg. I, 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 yeah. I think now I can start on a journey of weight loss. Because knowing Absolutely. if you can do it, then anybody can do it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, John. Well, we're not just brilliant influencers. We're also brilliant film critics. That's true. And that's really what this uh, show is about. Not improvisational comedy, thankfully. But it's about... Because <laughs> uh, if it were, oh boy. <laughs> yeah. It would be the top podcast of all time. But you know, what instead... the, you know what the world needs? More improvisational comedy podcasts. No, forget it. Let's do a mo- podcast about movies instead. <laughs> exactly. Instead, we're schlepping it in the dregs of, of, film, of film snobbery. <laughs> and reassessing old films and seeing if they hold up today. Exactly. So, for the Me Too movement... For this Me Too moment, we decided to revisit a movie that was not only written, but also directed by a lady. What? (laughs) Not only that, she was the first female Palme d'Or winner. Not only that, I believe one of the first, or one of the very few, um, women nominated for Best Director. Only five. Only five women have been nominated. Yes, and only one has won. Yes. (laughs) Great. And it's probably because she was married to... uh, James Cameron. Let's be honest. Let's be honest. Yeah, She's no, got a lot no, of sway in the industry. Lies. Yeah. <laughs> no, I can't believe he didn't kill her career after they divorced. <laughs> That's true. That's a good point. Yeah. He's not, he's not a very magnanimous man. <laughs> well, here's the thing. He was probably at the bottom of the ocean at the time. So. Yeah. Okay. But John, John we've delayed enough. <laughs> yes. This week, we revisited The Piano. singing the the Forrest Gump theme. (laughs) Why did we revisit this? This was your choice. Why this? Why now? Besides, well, because it's available for uh, with your with a subscription on Filmstruck. So you know, again, to bring back my frugality, there is that. (laughs) But also, we devoted the entire month of May to uh, westerns, which is the genre of toxic masculinity. That is true. So what we're trying to do is recapitulate a little bit and try to look at more uh, feminine-centered films. And so, um, yes, there was a there was a resurgence of feminism in the early '90s. That's what we saw. That's what we saw in Thelma and Louise, and it's also what we saw in this movie by Jane Campion called *The Piano*. And this movie also has a, an incredible pedigree. Uh, as you said, it won the Palme d'Or in 1993. Mm-hmm. Uh, it also won three Oscars for Best Actress, Best Supporting Actress, and Best Screenplay. Oh, yeah. So. Again, just um, and lost out in Best Picture to Schindler's List, which is a tough competition. I think you'll agree. So, <laughs> so it's on par with Shakespeare in Love. Got it. Sweet. Yeah. <laughs> nice, nice call there. Okay, never mind. <laughs> but it, also in its accolades, I had seen this movie before. You had not, and I do think it's a uh, it's kind of fascinating to see this uh, over twenty five years later, and seeing exactly kind of maybe the impact it has, or maybe it's philosophy. Again, I feel like this is another um, kind of feminist tale. And um, I just wanted is to get it? your. Is it? 
You said that about Thelma and Louise, and you were provably wrong there. So I'm I not going to take your... Uh, no, I was saying the reputation of Thelma and Louise is that it's a feminist picture. And I guess mm-hmm. also this one uh, could be considered a feminist tale, but when you actually examine the story, it's really not. Okay, well, well let's get into that story then. Okay. This is in the uh, Victorian era. There's a Scottish woman who is mute. Mm-hmm. Um, and she has a daughter that was a, that is a illegitimate, unfortunately. Um, doesn't really say that in the story. Doesn't say that they don't really they don't really give a lot of backstory. Period. They never no, really explain um, why she has to why she's kind of exiled herself to New Zealand to marry this rich landowner. But well, I mean, it's clear that they're aristocrats, so I can mm-hmm. I can kind of understand you know the arranged marriages and also colonialism as we get to. Cause she's she's shipped off to New Zealand. To marry this, uh, this also this colonizer played by this aristocratic, very stuffy colonizer played by Sam Neill. Mm-hmm. However, she also, eh, I've, well, I guess we'll get deeper into the story. But there's another man in her life played <laughs> by Harvey Keitel, yes, who is who is also British but is uh, completely nativized to the uh, to the to the indigenous Maori people. Yeah, so that would also confuse me for a second. I was like, is this is this bad racial casting? Why is Harvey Keitel got all this Maori uh, like uh, accoutrement on his face? Well, yeah, I, we should probably explain in terms of also backstory. It's not exactly explained how, although it's briefly touched upon how he had a wife. He was also a colonizer, but he did completely um, kind of uh, get um, not absorbed. What is the, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, acclimated. He did, yeah, he did get completely uh, acclimated or adopted. He by the dances tribe. with wolves this whole tribe. That's what he did. <laughs> well, that's what I was also going to speak to. The '90s were a big theme. This was a big theme in the '90s. There was Dances <laughs> with Wolves. There's this movie, Fern Gully. Like all these movies wanted to have you know Last white of the people acclimating. Yeah, all these, all these, all the movies in the '90s wanted to show white people acclimating to the uh, indigenous tribe. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe as an excuse not to actually cast um, indigenous people. <laughs> Hey, Pocahontas, man. They had actual Native Americans doing the singing. That's great. Yeah. Thank yeah. thank you, Disney, for being a leader in this category. <laughs> so, yes, this is a period piece. And mm-hmm. uh, because of it, the style is very staid, I would say. It's very uh, stately, quiet. It's very regal. It's very, I mean, uh, granted, it's like it's a study in contrast because you have this woman who's very prim and proper and wears very, you know, Victorian regala, but then has to, like, trudge through the mud and the muck and the dirt of New Zealand, so, like, it's practically uh, jungle. Well, yeah, I've, well, it is jungle, and mm-hmm. yeah, it's a it's a very wet season that they're in right now, but I, I actually, on this, on revisiting it, I thought, I was shocked by how ener- energized I thought the movie was for a period piece. Um, part of that's due to the editing, like, scenes kind of start and medias rest, and you kind of have to put scenes together. Like, there's one scene where a character actually gets somebody to tune the piano, mm-hmm. and there's no introduction or conclusion in that scene. You know, characters, you don't have to laboriously watch characters, you know, come into frame or leave frame. Like, so I was a little more energized by it, but obviously you you weren't as captured. No, I was not, because in my head, this movie only has, like, two modes, which is, like, steely quiet and then over-the-top melodrama, <laughs> which, again, goes with, oh, that's the kind of movie this is. It is kind of a period piece. It is a romance, so, mm-hmm. like, what are, what do I expect? So I, th- I thought it was fitting with what the movie is. Was I in the mood to watch that particularly? No, but, I mean, is, am I a fan of that? But I appreciate what they were going for. Okay, should we talk about the source of that melodrama, and that is the star of the show, uh, Holly Hunter? <laughs> yes. As Ada? Yes. So oh. she is mute, and mm-hmm. she we only know one thing about her. She loves her piano, her precious, precious piano. She's traveled across the ocean with this thing. 
Yes, and and insists um, when it's too heavy to actually take off the beach. Like she she insists, and she loves this piano almost to the point of petulance. Uh, mm-hmm. On this revisiting, you you thought that she was like kind of stately and staid. I was actually amazed by how like childish she is at times. That is true. I mean, you could make the argument that that's like Anna Paquin, like she is an extension of Anna Paquin. It's almost like Anna Paquin's her little mini me, because she's not well, only a yeah, translator, but also they're both again very childlike, and they both kind of mirror each other's emotions. You know, Holly Hunter, she's mute, so she's like signing, and her, you know, Anna Paquin's like she doesn't want the, she wants the piano moved up to the beach. Well, I'll, I'll also say, yeah, she's it's possible that she's not a very good mother because <laughs> um, while while I, you said that these characters don't have backstories i do like their independence though yeah and i'll also speak to you know both these actors won uh academy awards for their performances and i do think it's earned because um it's very it's very simple that you could have ada holly hunter's character being this very as you said or as you interpreted very stately very prim and proper in light of being forced into this marriage However, we, we see different sides to her, how insistent she is in getting her piano, how petulant she can be at times. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Sam Neill at one point admonishes, again, I'm just going to use the actor's names. <laughs> <laughs> Sam Neill at one point admonishes her, like saying, like, you know, sorry, you're gonna ha- you're in a marriage now, you have to make sacrifices. And I and I agreed with him in that scene. <laughs> so, Oh, you would agree with him. <laughs> exactly. You patriarchal dog. <laughs> Indeed. She did him wrong, but we'll get to that. <laughs> He's supporting her. He built her a house. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, it can't come now. It must. She wants it to come. Yes, and so do I, but there are too few of us here to carry it now. Too heavy. Do you mean you don't want your clothing or your kitchenware to come? Is that what you mean? Piano. Look, let's not discuss this any further. I'm very pleased that you arrived safely. Mother wants to know if I could come back directly for it. Could I apologize for the delay, which I regret was done... After un- they've taken the other things. Um, no, but you're you're uh, right about the whole in media. And if rest. I could speak to yeah, okay, and fine, if I could fine, also fine, interrupt. Okay. I, I was going to make my point, but go ahead. <laughs> well, no, because I, I wanted to talk about Anna Paquin as well. Like she's not she's not solely dependent on the mother, and she also challenges her mother. Oh no, absolutely. Like I think Anna Paquin's yeah, the best part of this movie. Yeah, and it it was e- it could have been easy. You just write her as precocious, or as you said, just an extension of her mother. But there's a lot more dimension to her character. Oh, no, I think Anna Paquin's great because of how naturalistic her performance is. She is playing a child, and like a child, mm-hmm. she's completely oblivious to everything that's going on around her. <laughs> <laughs> well, not not completely oblivious, and again, I do appreciate that she challenges or, or kind of rubs up against her, A, her adoptive father, who initially she doesn't, she obviously she wouldn't like, uh, but then her mother and some of the decisions that she makes, so. That's true. And again, she, you know, it's it's funny because as the story progresses, uh, Anna Paquin keeps thinking that she's doing the right thing and it just kind of brings her mother more grief, so. That's mm-hmm. Okay, so that's the thing, though. Like, the story starts off in Medias Res, and I do kind of appreciate the potential the story had to kind of go in new and interesting directions, but then I feel like it just kind of ended up in the most obvious place. Which is? Well, she eventually uh, has to deal with this ruffian, this Harvey Keitel fellow. So that Literally the, played by Harvey Keitel. Yes. Uh, <laughs> the so, way you said it, it sounded like a, a Harvey Keitel-esque character. <laughs> 
<laughs> he's extremely Harvey Keitel. He even looks like Harvey Keitel. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Maori and everything. Um, yeah. Oh, boy. <laughs> so the arrangement is uh, Sam Neill refuses to have the piano in the house. But yeah. Holly Hunter, obviously, she loves this piano. It's practically an extension of her. You might have missed that. We'll go over all the ways that this piano is an extension of her later on. It's yeah. a metaphor, people. Um, <laughs> well, not really, because she—I believe she does explain in the opening narration, like it's my voice. So it's not even—it's not even subtext at that point. It no. is just text, <laughs> exactly. So he takes the piano and he sells it to um, his hand, his like right-hand man, Harvey Keitel. Mm-hmm. And, well, but, Ivory Keitel does want it. I mean, there is there is a scene where they go down to the beach together so that she can play, mm-hmm. and that's where he first admires her. Uh, well, first admires her piano playing, but then uh, other parts of her as well. Let's say <laughs> exactly. And of course, this causes Holly Hunter a lot of grief. She goes so far as to carve fake piano keys into the table so she can like pretend to play. Um, yeah. So they come up with a little arrangement. Harvey Keitel will take care of the piano. He'll you know treat it right if she can give him lessons. Now, as the story progresses, we realize Harvey Keitel is not really interested in piano lessons, is he? No. <laughs> he wants that pee. He wants that pussy. <laughs> he, 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 wants her, he wants her to sing, not play piano. <laughs> yeah, so this is the creepy aspect of the story, which is basically Harvey Keitel basically uses the piano as a bargaining chip so that she can sexually gratify him. Not in, like, a super dirty way. I won't... I'll give the movie some credit to that. He just wants to, like, lie with her. But he's still very much a creep. Yeah, so at this point in the story, we're watching kind of two forms of toxic masculinity. Mm -hmm. There's the aristocratic kind who, again, wants to force her into... A, a this arranged marriage, and or, or force her into into the role in this arrange into a particular role in this arranged marriage, and also doesn't acknowledge like her individuality or her wants and needs, particularly around the piano. Mm-hmm. And then you also have Harvey Keitel, who's again coercing her into sexual gratification. So exactly again, neither neither is very sympathetic, and at the at this point in the time, and that's why. Yeah, the movie also loses me sometimes. It's like, because where, where are our sympathies supposed to lie? And I do think, you know, Jane Campion just wants to lay out the story and then let the audience kind of interpret that. But instead, I feel a little bit, like, unmoored. Instead, I feel, like, out to sea, when really I want to be, like, kind of pointed in a particular direction, let's say. <laughs> yeah, but then the movie takes a weird turn, which is that she actually falls for Harvey Keitel, and she falls in love with him, which I thought was really creepy. And again, talking about the Me Too movement, I thought that was very (laughs) anti-feminist. The fact that it's like, yes, men just keep hammering at that woman, regardless of her consent, and eventually (laughs) she'll come around. Well, hang on. There is is a moment I think you're missing, and it's it's when he does relent. He actually gives her back the piano, Hmm. if you remember. I do. I do vaguely remember that. But again, the arrangement was kind of weird enough that I was like, I'm kind of having a hard time to follow. (laughs) Yes, this is. This doesn't exactly, you know, empower her when she goes back to her abuser. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) But the at the moment in time, but basically what happens is he they go to this performance. The kids have put on a show. Well, and the adults, but they're there for the kids, Mm -hmm. including Anna Paquin's character. And this I like because again, it's like these characters have their own separate lives. Like Anna Paquin has her own thing to do. (laughs) Exactly, and that's what makes the story so much richer. Mm -hmm. But what Harvey Keitel sees at this performance is that. 
he, she's well, a little bit more affectionate to Sam Neill, her arranged husband, and that's when he he and he's also being humiliated by the locals who just think he's just a simpleton and like, oh, you're learning piano, like play as Mary had a little lamb, you you dumb dumb. Well, you're also missing a big component, which is what is the what is the play that they're putting on? Well, yeah, the, if, if we get into foreshadowing, it's a play. <laughs> uh, foreshadowing or just being so on the nose that you look like uh, you're on. George Washington Mount Rushmore statue. Oh, come back to me. I'll come up with a better metaphor. <laughs> it was brilliant. Keep going. No, it's it's a story of I'm not sure the exact uh, whatever performance it is. It's Bluebeard. Bluebeard. Okay. Yeah. I know, I don't know what Bluebeard is. I apologize. Uh, Bluebeard is an old French fairy tale about uh, basically an aristocrat who ha- who you know takes on this wife and says like you know I'll love you forever as long as you can pass this one test. Don't go into the basement. Or something like that. I'm paraphrasing. I might have some of the details yeah, wrong. Yeah, but he Aven- essentially murders. Yeah, he. he murders event- his she wives. eventually goes into the basement. What does she find? The corpses of all his previous wives. <laughs> yeah. So yes, it's a it's a story about you know male entitlement and entrapment. So, uh, but if, if we can get back to within this moment, uh, Harvey Keitel realizes that she's chosen another man, and she and he kind of acknowledge at least acknowledges her choice then, and is gracious enough to to give her back her piano. And I think that's what kind of flips it for her. But and is that enough? I didn't feel like that was enough. I, I, John, she's her own woman. Now, why are you going to impose your own standards on her now? All right. <laughs> wow, you acted like she a made de- her. She made her own decision. All right, just give her give her a break. Because I will acknowledge. Let's let's be honest. The character is not the most mature. That is Ada, Ada is not the most mature woman. Uh, and maybe not the most like well versed in in romantic relationships, so I, I can kind of understand it. Yes, I'm with you. I don't condone it. Don't go, <laughs> please, if you can, don't go back to your abuser. But it, at least it it does complicate the story somewhat. However, this is this is where I think you're right. The story does take a turn for the more melodramatic. Mm-hmm. And again, it's like it's so obvious. Like, oh, I'm stuck between two men: my aristocratic flop husband, or you know, mm-hmm. the rugged boorish field hand oh who do i pick you know it's like (laughs) well i think the answer is obvious because one thing we should point out is that sam neill has no game in this movie (laughs) just absolutely none well i think it's also semi-implying that he's gay like i think he has (laughs) where did you get that because there's a scene where they're having an intimate moment and she starts like trying to get him into butt stuff I, (laughs) i i thought that was her yeah, like she's. Pulls, he pulls up his. I, no, she's the one that wants. Yeah, to but do he's kind stuff. of. I think it's because he doesn't want to admit he's kind of into that. No, well, no. Why does he pull up his pants then? I think, I because he again, he they, like it's embarrassing. I think he wants. I think he'll do, John. I think he'll do anything for love, but he won't do that. <laughs> no, I think it's because he likes it. I think there's a queer subtext that you're missing, Greg. <laughs> sure, sure. We'll, we'll ask. Jane Look Campion. forward we'll to around, my forty we'll minute blower. We'll get her on the horn. <laughs> Excuse me, Miss Campion. Look forward to my 40-minute YouTube video essay on the queer <laughs> subtext of a piano. <laughs> Just in time for Pride Month. Let's go. Yeah. In any event. It kind of puts her in an impossible... Yeah, this is where you kind of lose the thread because you don't understand her motivation for, again, going back to somebody who's sexually manipulated her. Exactly. You don't understand uh, the stodgy husband who, again, who has shown no sympathy or just can't empathize with her arranged wife well i think he's shown a little bit of sympathy but really not enough and the fact that she forgives harvey Keitel for showing just like the smallest decent amount of humanity whereas like sam neil has been at least a little agreeable up until this point until he does find out about the kind of infidelity that's when he kind of turns into a monster well there, there's a few more steps to that it's not just you know i 
I was going. <laughs> you're you're thinking that he's into butt stuff. <laughs> uh, we should also explain there's a there's a voyeuristic aspect to this. Um, oh yes, because every character just happens to catch them having sex. <laughs> <laughs> or also every movie uh, centered around women in the '90s had to have this uh, particular theme. Mm-hmm. Um, Silence of the Lambs being the most probably famous example, but there's. Uh, there's one scene where they insist on taking the photograph, even though conditions are not uh, are not agreeing with it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there's this great close-up where he's, uh, two characters are looking through the lens, and she's uh, sitting in their in their portrait in their in front of the backdrop, looking miserable. Mm-hmm. Well, you couldn't <laughs> there, smile in photographs in those days because the exposure yeah, well, time was like five minutes. <laughs> well, in spite of, she would be miserable anyway, even mm-hmm. if she couldn't smile. So. That's true. And then there's a scene where she actually catches um, Ida and this. Uh, this uh, Harvey Keitel's character, this adoptive Maori guy, mm-hmm. in the act, yeah. and he he doesn't initially act shocked or angry. Instead, he you know kind of takes it in a little bit mm-hmm. for for his own sick pleasure. And then but, he hides under the floorboards to watch them. It's weird. Well, I th- I think he needed some. I think Gene Campion wanted to have a moment of suspense where like, oh no, he'll get caught. Mm-hmm. And the easiest way to do that was have the button fall to the floor. Oh, mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, can you can you conceive of a scene where she say goes to the window and he's like, oh no, or, you know, it wouldn't have worked. <laughs> I mean, was that button scene supposed to be suspenseful? <laughs> I mean, you, I completely missed that, but okay, it, it works for me. Oh, right. It works for me. <laughs> That's all that matters. <laughs> I trusted you. I trusted you. I trusted you. <laughs> And then it, it then it goes into this whole melodramatic situation where he's like he's boarding up the house so that she can't escape, and then you know he has an arrangement for her which is like you can't see him again or else you're going to lose your piano. And then what she does is as a nice symbolic gesture and again a little bit of foreshadowing, she takes off one of the keys from the piano and writes a love note on it to, to be delivered to Harvey Keitel, and she gives it to Anna Paquin. Well, this is following. We should point out that Sam Neill and Ida are actually on the same page in their relationship, and she and he takes the boards back down. Mm. And it seems like they've they've no, reconciled. No, see that? No, see that's dumb. See that? I always hated that. <laughs> I hated that because again, it's like you set up this conflict and then resolve it like thirty seconds later. No, I hated that. Well, I thought I thought it worked in terms of you know like which I didn't know which way the story was going to. Well, obviously I did. I've seen the movie before, <laughs> but in terms of like who. Uh, Obviously, she's she's trying to make the best of a bad situation, but which bad situation is she going to choose? Mm. But you do mention that she obviously still has feelings for Harvey Keitel's character. For some she reason. She writes a love note. Well, I, 
Listen, he's gotten way more game than Sam Neill does. I can understand <laughs> does he? if your options if your options are extremely limited as hers we are. Get, we get two naked shots of Harvey Keitel, okay? He ain't working with much game, okay? Let me tell you. <laughs> <Mm-mm>. I, <laughs> I'm sorry. I thought that those back muscles are something to aspire to. All right, but obviously you just want to put on those pounds, so... <laughs> Oh, all right, I'm in a weak place right now. Okay, I am extremely judgmental. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right, fair enough. But as you said, he she still harbors these feelings for Harvey Keitel, mm-hmm. sends her a note. However, the intermediary she has to go through is her precocious daughter. Yes. <laughs> who immediately goes to Sam Neill and saying, like, hey, she's she's going back to this Harvey Keitel guy. Yes. And again, you know, foreshadowing, she uses a piano key to um, write this message on to show how important it is. Um, yeah, not foreshadowing, like symbolism. Symbolism. Yeah, it's like literally well, giving, no, and yeah, it is foreshadowing because when Sam Neill finds out, what does he do? He flies into a rage, he takes his axe, and again, just like Bluebeard, takes his ass and, axe and chops off one of her fingers. So she's literally given a piece of herself, both <laughs> metaphorically and literally. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I, For this guy. Again, like, when this stuff kind of works, it's like, oh, brilliant. But when it doesn't work, I'm like, ugh, too obvious, too on the nose. And so... For me, because this movie really didn't work, I was like, eh, it's too, it's too much, it's too much. <laughs> the whole piano key well, and the and the blue beard thing, and then you know the fact that she lost a finger. I don't, know, it's, it, I don't know. It didn't work for me personally. Well, I, I admire it for that, even if it is, even if it is a little on the nose, as you said. Mm-hmm. Um, I also admire Campion's direction at this point because I do like the scene where she, um, Anna Paquin's character, runs straight to Sam Neill. It's an overcast day. It's yeah. we're finally out of the jungle. We're out of the jungle for what feels like the first time in at least an hour, mm-hmm. and there are Dutch angles and like that direction. I do wish it was more though of a piece. Yeah, because as you said, it's a, it starts out very stately and then at this turn becomes very melodramatic and and uh, unexpectedly violent. Let's say. Mm-hmm. Uh, even unexpectedly, even though it's obviously foreshadowed in the performance of Bluebeard, and the, and also you know there's a tight close up of when um, Sam Neill's character is chopping wood. Mm-hmm. That's something I missed the first time I saw this movie. It was like, oh, I I see that now. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so um, that shocking twist was a little bit more unexpected, but still, I I do admire the the technical aspects of the movie and what a what a fine job Campion did in terms of like crafting these scenes and not making it feel so stodgy. I just wish tonally it, it kind of more fit together no absolutely you're absolutely right it's like my my qualms with this movie are not with the direction i think this is an absolutely gorgeous movie but story-wise i, I think it leaves a lot to be kind of desired and the and the and it, it never elevates itself in my mind above costume drama ouch yeah sorry Boog, sorry that's hurtful i know i know i'm harsh well, i'm cruel i'm mean okay i'm like sam neil let's chop this off <laughs> well i i think it also doesn't benefit from a very strong ending either because what winds up happening is that um she goes with harvey Keitel, who's leaving new zealand mm-hmm. um because how's he gonna stay after again this, it isn't you know? touched on yeah which also isn't touched on because he's he's supposed to have nativized and, and now he's going to be coming back to england with face tattoos <laughs> and um his illiteracy so how exactly is he going to integrate well, into yeah and you brought English up society? yeah and you brought up this fact that it's like the movie doesn't really hold your hand for a lot of it so it's just kind of like sometimes it can kind of cut and it feels like a scene is missing and we really do just kind mm-hmm. of like cut to them leaving oh yeah they do touch on that like harvey Keitel's is going to leave because if he feels like I, i'm assuming it's the personal loss knowing that he's not going to be with holly hunter's character exactly and again sam neil you know 
takes the severed finger and basically brings it to Harvey Keitel as a threat, basically, like, if she ever comes back to you, you know, expect more mm-hmm. of these. So he knows he yeah. can't stay because he knows he can't really be separated from her, or at least he has to separate her from because they can't be in the same, you know, area together unless they're going to fall back in bed together. Well, Sam Neill, we should say, he does capitulate. He does allow her to leave. Mm-hmm. And... This is where it gets a little, like, again, the melodrama is cranked up to 11 because they, Harvey Geitel and, and a few of his uh, Maui, Maori mates um, get on this boat. Yeah. Um, in sharp contrast to the, the grungy English people who, like, can't move, can't move for heavy crates and boxes. The Maori work perfectly efficiently on this beach. Mm-hmm. But then uh, when they're on the boat and it, is, and it is rough sea, Ada agrees, like, let's just dump the piano. Forget it. It's got too many bad memories. Yeah. And... Yeah, it, that that would be fine if we just saw the piano kind of descend. But instead, we have to have this Captain Ahab <laughs> moment where she gets tangled up and goes down with the piano. But Greg, it's a metaphor. The piano is an extension of herself. Did you not see that? <laughs> well, yeah, but we could have achieved that with her just letting the piano go. But instead, we have to see. Instead, we contrive this scenario where, like, oh, like you know, I I'm going down with my piano, and then she decides, like, no, I'm not. I'm not going to go down with this thing. Exactly. Again, it's not it's not that much of a part of me. And she saves herself. She unties her foot from it and swims. Well, no, yeah, and that's the thing. Like, the whole point of that scene is to show that the piano is a burden. It's, you know, weighing her yeah. down. Oh, okay. But we already know that from it being too heavy on the boat. Like, for it to be dragging her down with her. <laughs> like, again, it's, it's, too, it's too much. Like, you've doubled yeah. down on the metaphor. Yeah. So, and in a movie that I don't think needed it. Yeah. Again, it could just, it would just be fine and an acceptable drama. Instead, like, I'm conscious that I'm watching, it's almost schlocky in a way. <laughs> or or exaggerated or silly, almost. Exactly, so, yeah. The movie didn't need it. Mm-hmm. And then we have this uh, this final kind of resolution where they're, they've got a happy life in in England. Um, again, it's not touched on how, you know, <laughs> again, people with facial tattoos can't even get a job today. I don't know how... <laughs> I don't know how Harvey Keitel's character could get a job being being illiterate and having face <laughs> tattoos in England, but and and he makes her a little tin finger, so she's still able to play. And I kind of mm-hmm. like the whole scene where they're showing her play with the tin finger, and you know it has an ex- adds a little extra click to every time she uses it. I thought that was a nice little pleasant moment. Good sound design in this yeah. movie. Oh yeah, um, yeah. So a lot of great the technical aspects, but as you said, the story. A little too confusing in terms of characters' mm-hmm. motivation, how we should th- sympathize with them, their actions at times. So, mm-hmm. but still, I think I think worthwhile in in viewing today and to, and to come ponder these things as we have, mm. John. Mm. <laughs> you don't think it's worth pondering? Eh. Okay. Yeah. All right. Forget it. Agree to disagree. Yep. How about that? Yeah. But like like all the characters, we just agree to go our separate ways. I guess. I'm mm-hmm. Sam Neill in this situation though, because I like butt stuff. <laughs> I. <I've... laughs> I thought, I, no, that's not cool, because Sam Neill is better, is more awesome than Harvey Keitel. I mean, they're both great, don't get me wrong, but <laughs> Harvey Keitel isn't on Twitter. Let's let's ask Sam Neill about this. Yes. Let's, let's <laughs> Sam Neill is very prolific on Twitter, so yes, we can't, yeah. we can't ask him about this. <laughs> let's set up an interview. Yeah, absolutely. The Ada. You will regret it. Shipiano, I want you to... She doesn't want it! No. Sit, sit down! Alright, the 
Man, I can't believe Harvey Keitel is not on Twitter. Think of all the followers he would have. Mm. <laughs> he seems like a uh, traditional guy, John. <laughs> you think? I'm just picturing his tweets. I'm eating a bagel right now. <laughs> bagel. It's good. <laughs> I'm on 48th and Broadway. <laughs> like, I just mm. picture him just bumming around New York. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I picture him like, hey, when's Quentin Tarantino going to get on this thing? <laughs> I haven't heard from him in a few days. Am I going to be in that Hollywood uh, movie? Am I going to be in that? Uh, oh, every, everybody. Movie? Is. Yeah, <laughs> of course there's going to John. Of course there's going to be a role for him. Okay. Everybody's in that movie. All right. <laughs> Hell, he managed to drag Leonardo DiCaprio from his uh, his lifetime sabbatical of just banging supermodels in the south of France. Now that he has his Oscar, exactly. Like, I, I, I assume he's just never going to act again. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> he's not going to do it for the art. What a pity. Anyway, John, let's wrap up this episode with our favorite segment. Oh getting people to subscribe <laughs> like our page on Twitter. <laughs> absolutely. Yes, absolutely. That's our favorite. Yes. Is when we when we thirstfully, desperately <laughs> ask people for their support. We need that validation. No, John. Of course I'm talking about Spotlight. 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 It's time, Robbie. It's time. This is the moment in the show when we recommend things that uh, you know, people can enjoy. That have piqued our interest in the past week or past lifetime. Yeah, or not in my case oh. cuz <laughs> oh, no. I I, I want to share a little disappointment I had with you, John. Oh, dear. I finally got to see a movie that I wanted to desperately watch uh, last winter. Mm-hmm. Um, it came out for Oscar time. Do you know what that movie is, John? Uh, I mean, the, the competition was so fierce. Like, I can't come... Mm-hmm. It, can't, it doesn't come to mind. I'm talking about Hostiles. Oh, Touch. right. Ah. Yes. We talked about this. Greg was so excited to see Hostiles. It was right up his alley. Absolutely. If If you put all the pieces together... This is a movie made specifically for me. <laughs> and who would have thought it would have been a disappointment? <laughs> well, exactly. I had maybe outsized expectations for it. So this is a movie directed by Also, it had Scott zero Cooper. buzz. Come on. Oh, <laughs> well, it, almost, it almost had some buzz coming out of Telluride, uh, the Telluride Film Festival, and a, and a few What the other hell is Telluride? <laughs> <laughs> John, you really got to get up on your, on, your, on your festival lore here. Oh, gosh. Come on, that's... That and Venice and Toronto are the launching pads for an, for a successful Oscar campaign. Oh Come my on. God. It sounds like the NDX to WrestleMania, okay? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not. It's for the uh, no, it's kind of the it's kind of the velvet underground sort of. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like not everybody saw them, but the people who did started their own uh, film festivals. <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> in in ritzy, you know, mountain villages. <laughs> for people who just with too much money but in any event this movie got some oscar buzz last year because it stars christian bale uh this movie is directed by scott cooper who's had a run of some good movies lately uh crazy heart uh out of the furnace a few others but so this is a this is a raw masculine movie yeah it's about the west yeah. but it's a real west it's hard it's gritty yeah, well, it's also revisionist Western John because it's about uh, a captain played by Christian Bale. He has to transport uh, a, a Cheyenne chief uh, back to his homeland from uh, New Mexico up to Montana. And John, he does not like those engines one bit. What? Yeah, John, people will repeat it like, "Oh, isn't it awful what the United States is doing to the the native populations here?" <laughs> right? <laughs> yes, I'm sure that was the attitude of the time. Everyone was like, "Oh, yeah. how could we?" <laughs> Well, a few characters bring it up, and that's that points to one problem. So Christian Bale, I think, does do a, a fine job in terms of, like, you know, 
kind of suppressing his blind fury to be forced into the situation. <laughs> That's what he does best. Yeah. But uh, the, whereas the piano, like, kind of only hinted at particular backstory, this captain here has no backstory. Absolutely none. Okay. Like, we know nothing about him before. We know nothing about him after. Like, just absolutely there's no mention of a wife there's no mention of a family there's no mention of what he did well there's brief mention of what he did before the war in or before this you know conflict i I don't want to call it an outright war let's call it a genocide how about that (laughs) okay fair um but they briefly touch on that in one of the many 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 um you know kind of whispery silent you know groggy conversations that he has with his fellow um commanders and things like that so um, it's this movie's so serious, deadly serious, <laughs> and because of that, it's so just so torpid. And whatever fine actors that they do get there, whether it's um, Rosamund Pike, I think she gives the best performance because she's um, her homestead is attacked by natives, and she's the only survivor of her family. So okay, there's she there's has a reason to, to her. have animosity towards these people. Yeah, exactly, and again, like a reason to progress because John this. I think the story was conceived by a writer who's um, who sadly passed away, but his manuscript kind of passed hands. And oh, okay. So I think it's it it's kind of set in this. It's revisionist, but not it doesn't go the whole way. Instead, it's it's handled in the most obvious manner, which is like I start the movie. Oh, I hate engines, but as as we go along this journey, oh, I've I've got some begrudging respect for it. Oh, them. okay. <laughs> yeah. What is this? A movie from the nineties? <laughs> Well, pretty, that's when it was conceived and yep. written, and apparently didn't, didn't get a rewrite. So bring it back. Yeah. <laughs> and then whatever, what other, whatever other actors they have, they got Jesse Plemons, they got Timothy Chalamet, so hot right now. No, so but hot. They, but they barely make an impression. Timothy Chalamet is in the movie for about five minutes, and he has about two lines of dialogue. So, mm-hmm. what, I mean, what? I'll let you figure out. I'll let you figure out what happens to him from there. Okay. So. <laughs> what is the purpose of the character? <laughs> Well, the, the purpose is he's supposed to be the the green one. Oh, okay. So he's like, all right. Yeah. So he's the he's the green member of the party that has to transport these uh the Cheyenne uh the Cheyenne family back to their homeland. Got it. And also there they there's also a complication where they have to transport uh Ben Foster, who's a who's an army commander who's gone a bit nuts, mm. and who's acted out violently, and now he's got to also go to Montana to stand trial. And but again, like nothing kind of comes of that. It feels like so like cobbled together. And I saw this movie cost fifty million dollars, <laughs> and it, and it's an independent production. They didn't even have a distributor yet. And I'm like, how like how could you not like a get a second draft, but b like get Ben Foster like available to be in more than like three scenes? Well, that's probably why. I mean, if you're getting talent like Ben Foster and Timothy Chalamet and Christian Bale, like Christian Bale requires a heavy cost. I mean, he obviously yeah. takes interesting roles, but it's going to cost you a pretty penny. Yeah. So I've, uh, not to not to sound too negative, it's still like a pretty well done movie. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of like the cinematography is great. Um, again, shooting on real locations, real elements, like real horseback things like that. <laughs> they used real horses and everything. <laughs> See, exactly. <laughs> so it it feels genuine from from that standpoint. But yeah, the story is just so stodgy. It's just the same, you know, growly conversations over and over again, and same with the kind of same dull shootouts. Like even when they do, when there are flashes of violence, they're just kind of shot in such a such a bland, uninteresting way. So mm-hmm. I, I, again, at disappointed when, and even it also has a uh, Max Richter did the score, and he's one of my favorite composers, and even that didn't leave an impression. No. So 
this is this is just a personal grievance. <laughs> Greg just had so many thoughts he had to express. <laughs> exactly. So if you do like kind of a, a, a straightforward Western, maybe you'll like this. Mm-hmm. Maybe if you like Christian Bale, you'll like this. Maybe if you want to see Rosamund Pike, you can, maybe you're a Rosamund Pike stand. I don't know. <laughs> you'll be fine with this movie, but yeah, it, uh, in terms of uh, satisfying the Greg test, it did not pass. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> Well, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to hear it. Yeah, in spite in spite of it, you know, like the SATs, you know how you get uh, automatic 200 points for just filling out your name. Mm-hmm. I mean, this movie had an extra, you know, had an automatic B for having all these elements together. But yeah, it just didn't just didn't elevate that. It only it only diminished from there, unfortunately. Okay. I'm, I'm yeah. when I saw the trailer. What did I dub this movie? I think I called it the Assassination <laughs> of Cold Mountain by the Coward. There will be blood or something like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Like, because again, it just it, it it like it it seems like a very and those are all great movies. Yeah, yeah. no, they're all great <laughs> movies. But again, it feels like it's playing off that template, which is why I think it didn't excite people. It's like, haven't mm. we seen this before? Just done better. Yeah. Well, not even those movies were like box office bonanzas. <laughs> I guess that's true. Yeah. Fifty million dollars. Goodness gracious. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, don't they get tax credits for filming in the desert? What's going on? <laughs> New Mexico. Yeah, they do. That I think that's another problem they had in that. The, the scenery doesn't really progress from <laughs> New Mexico to Montana. And maybe it does. I've never driven you know, across those states. So, but And maybe that was also an intentional choice by Scott Cooper. I'm not sure. But again, many problems. But John, come on. Let's get, let's get back to something more positive. I'm sorry for bringing the show down. Oh, well, now, I'm, now I regret <laughs> my choice of a <laughs> podcast because we're going to talk about suicide for a few minutes, folks. Great. Uh, I have to. I I know we 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 don't like doing this, but I have to uh, recommend another podcast. What I know, there are other podcasts out there. Exactly, believe it or not, this it's a booming uh, industry, booming. Okay. Um, this is kind of it's a podcast that's kind of true crime adjacent, but it does enough differently that I think is why I'm kind of really into it. Uh, it's called The Gateway, and it's a uh, investigative podcast done by the Gizmodo. Okay. Yeah, and uh, what it, you know, it it follows the same kind of like true crime trends. It's like I didn't have a story. I was you know completely lost, <laughs> and then I came across this YouTube video. <laughs> yeah, with the, with a little guitar or piano, like you know, <laughs> softly twinkling in the background. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm enjoying my pour over coffee in my office in Brooklyn. <laughs> so what he ends up coming across is a video by Teal Swan who is this YouTuber slash Instagram star slash spiritual healer who has a massive following, but I'd never heard of her, which, again, mm-hmm. shows the problem with this internet is the fact that anyone can be famous and no one knows who the fuck you are. Um, <laughs> but again... It, well, let's say anybody can have a following, not necessarily, like, famous. Exactly. Like, yeah. capital F way, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, you can sell at a theater, but then you go, like, leave onto the street and no one knows who the hell you are. Um, It's kind of strange, but I think that's what makes this podcast so fascinating. uh, He's investigating this, you know, spiritual guru. Her name is Teal Swan. And she's got a lot of, like, Eastern mysticism to her uh, philosophy. She's got a lot of uh, strange ideas that, you know, the American Psychiatric Society obviously does not agree with. (laughs) But, (laughs) you know, it's this weird kind of mishmash between like potential cultish activities and like instagram youtube star so she's talking about the haters and you know it's like people have so many negative comments and you know like that's just bad energy okay and i agree (laughs) well sadly we don't have so far i'm not so far i'm not identifying a problem (laughs) okay (laughs) 
But um, there are only like three episodes in. It's a weekly podcast, and who knows how many parts. I think it's going to be like seven to 12 parts. Who knows how many parts it's going to mm-hmm. be. And I kind of do, like, at first I thought like, oh, why would I appreciate a podcast that only has like so many parts? But I kind of understand. Journalism's hard. And if you want to have a compelling story, it's got to kind of come to a conclusion which sometimes it doesn't. I remember listening to Atlanta Monster, and it's like, <laughs> at the end of that podcast, they throw up their hands. It's like, well, could have been him, could have not been, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's it's pretty fascinating stuff. They end up going to her, like her retreat in Costa Rica, her whole like compound. Again, comes off as like kind of cultish, but it's weirdly approachable with the fact that she's like, you know, I've got 12 million Instagram followers or something like that. Um, mm. And then... You know, they get into, like, her philosophy and, like, kind of how dangerous it can be. Because one of the things that people kind of don't like about her is that she has kind of a glib view of suicide. And she kind of has this didactic view that it's like, you're either committed to life or you're not. And they use this case, this very specific case. One of her earliest followers, one of her earliest clients was this girl named Lindsay who did end up killing herself. And it's like, how culpable is Teal Swan in this? Because it's like, according to Teal Swan, it's like, I did everything I could for her. But it's also like, Teal, did you not like kind of give up on her? It's it's this weird kind of, like, depending on where you're coming from, was she, you know, a good psychologist? Was she a good therapist to her or not? You know, it's 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 an interesting, it's an interesting gray area. And again, but then we get into like her whole thing about, you know, reincarnation and like regressed memories. And it's like your bullshit alarm goes off like, uh oh, uh oh, we're in, we're in scary territory now. Wait, it wasn't going off already. <laughs> well, or all right. are you taking or are you taking the word of an Instagram influencer at, at her? Let's word? just say in the color coding spectrum, we went from like orange to red at that point. OK, got it. <laughs> <Yeah>. Okay. <laughs> So I think it's a really fascinating podcast, and I highly recommend it. You know, Gizmodo does good journalism. So, and you know, guys, so the, sto- the fourth estate is more important now more than ever. Okay, <laughs> yeah, this this the podcast we meet we need now more than ever. <laughs> um, but as you said, the story isn't finished yet. So is she still like kind of on her? I don't want to say racket. <laughs> I don't want to be that dismissive. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Is she still like making posting and still like influencing people out there? Yeah. So yes. There's no, there's no been, there's no criminal prosecution. She's still out there doing her thing. Okay. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know how much it, of a kind of satisfying. Obviously, these story. It sounds like these stories with her followers are kind of cropping. Exactly. Up and yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And again, like that's why it's kind of vital. It's like it's taking a critical eye to her and what she preaches. So it's like, well, you know, necessarily, it's not like we're gonna have a wild, wild country ending. It, it's important that we kind of investigate and kind of see what she's all about. And what her methods are. Okay. You know, primal scream therapy and all that bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> so it's ongoing. Exactly, it it's ongoing. Like. Well, if anything, I think this uh, points to the dangers of social media. That, there you go. It's horrible. Yeah. We're addicted to our screens, folks. Yep. Speaking of which, you know who's on Facebook and Twitter. <laughs> if, but if you're going to be addicted to your screen, you should be addicted to our screen. <laughs> Absolutely. Because we have positive messages out there, too. Exactly. I, I know I'm on my Twitter feed pretty much every day, um, spreading positive message how I'm dominating the haters. <laughs> <laughs> we'll never encourage you to kill yourself. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, hey, I rented a car the other day. So, you know, back off. Okay? <laughs> I'm great. <laughs> I'm an adult. <laughs> yeah. Greg is constantly Instagram pictures of his avocado toast, so you have that mm-hmm. to look forward to. It's damn good. I'm going to share this recipe. 
this recipe for toast. <laughs> it's very important you get the basil <laughs> and freshly ground pepper. <laughs> wow, pepper? Ooh, you're lighting the culinary yeah. world on fire there. Indeed I am. Basil gives a little bite. Anyway, if you want to see more recipes like this, because that's what this podcast is about, follow us at Aspiring Snobs on Twitter and on Facebook. Like our Facebook page. Yeah. Again, you'll see a whole lot of other community. That's how you can get in touch with us, too. Mm-hmm. If you want to like recommend a movie or share your thoughts on the, the complicated characters of the piano. <laughs> yes, you can also. Obviously, we shared our thoughts. We want to hear from you. Exactly. If you have questions for us, too, we'll, we'll elucidate on some areas where maybe we didn't quite cover. Mm-hmm. And if you want a less public forum, you could always reach out to us at our email, at aspiringsnobs at gmail.com. Yes, and we also mentioned we do want to interview Sam Neill, and, but we can't do it alone. So please, inundate him with requests to interview us. Exactly. To please get in touch with us, and then we'll, uh, we'll talk to him about his life um, on, the, on the New Zealand Isles, you know, mm-hmm. talking with pigs, you know, just hanging out. Yeah. Just, you know, sign our moveon.com petition, and once we get a million signatures, he'll have no choice. <laughs> Okay, guys. Yeah. It's it's John. It's moveon.org. Okay. okay. Excuse me. This is an important organization. <laughs> this is not commerce. All, All right. right. This is not. This is not like every other uh, Democratic <laughs> Party operation. <Okay>. All right. <laughs> Democratic or progressive. Year. Okay, folks. Idea. Yeah, exactly. Come on. Let's flip the world upside down. Let's do mm. it. Uh, and then once you're done with that, you can mm. give us five stars on your podcast service of choice and leave us a review. Yeah. Actually, do that first. <laughs> You're already on the podcast service of choice, so give us a review first. Exactly. We always say, like, go to our social media. No, the the podcast listening is what matters. Exactly. <laughs> and it'll help more people find our podcasts, and our numbers will grow. We'll go viral. Yes. And and it'll really so. stick it to those haters, okay, guys? Give us five stars to Absolutely. stick it to the haters. Yeah. John, let's dominate the haters by telling folks what we're watching next week. Next week, we'll be going to the cinema, and we'll be doing another recent and releases an R and R. That's what R and R stands supposed, for. In case, be, yeah. in case people didn't realize. Yeah. So the analogy doesn't work. Well, it's supposed to be rest and relaxation because sometimes it's it's not only hard to sit through these old classics that maybe don't hold up today, but also hard to find them. <laughs> um, as I said, the piano is available with a subscription to Filmstruck, mm-hmm. um, which is a service you and I both admire. And then uh, we won't really like, yeah, we won't really uh, encourage us people to get it until they start paying us. Okay. Yeah. Come on, come on, Filmstruck. Let's go. This episode is not brought to you by Filmstruck, so please <laughs> let us wet our beaks. Yeah. <laughs> Daddy needs his milk money. Let's go. <laughs> but then also it was a it was a bit of a challenge to find Koyanis Katsi the week the week prior. So. Exactly. And so we'll just we just jaunt down to the cinema, just have a good time with movies that were made for audiences today. Isn't going to the cinema more work though? I mean, not for me. Yeah. I I live in Los Angeles, so there's a there's a movie theater every two feet. I'm I'm cool. I mean, when they eventually start doing the straight streaming, beaming straight into your house thing, it's gonna start off in L.A. or New York. So you're you're probably yeah. in the clear. San Diego's not well, gonna get that I, service until like. As, yeah, as somebody who admires the movie-going experience. Oh, yes. You need to see it in a theater, on film. Yes, it needs to be a communal activity. <laughs> While you're munching on even though Even though every other word I say is just, it is, is just basic irritation on how I have to wait in line or sit in traffic or <laughs> It needs to be a communal experience. To people. Having to put up with people on their cell phones and smelling the B.O. from across the aisle. <laughs> See, film critics. Had an experience like, film critics love this like because they're doing it in like the most optimal professional setting. 
They're like, yeah. yes, you need to go to the cinema, whereas like the rest of us plebeians, the rest of us schlebs, have to do like live in the real world. Yeah, and actually pay for it, <laughs> <laughs> bitches. So you know what? Ignore every film critic except us. Exactly. All right, because we're we're with you. We don't go to these pre-screenings. You know? Yeah. We don't get pay. We don't get. We don't get to go to the premiere. No. And then get get uh, exclusive access to the first tweets to say like, oh my gosh, Jurassic World is the most amazing <laughs> experience. <laughs> uh, Greg, it's Jurassic World: Fallen Kingdom. Okay. Oh my, my bad. Yes, please specify. It's important. Yeah. Because in the, the future, Lost World, Jurassic World, <laughs> <laughs> the Lost World, Jurassic World, more Loster. Yeah. <laughs> two T Rex, two Furious. <laughs> That's how they improved the sequel. They had two T Rexes. <laughs> yeah. More of everything, please. Yes, that's how all sequels should work. Uh, well, thank you, everybody, for listening. And until next time, keep aspiring. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Delicious things to eat. The popcorn can't be beat. The sparkling drinks are just dandy. The chocolate bars and the candy. So let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat.